Hi everyone, this is Victoria Stapleton, Director of School and Library Marketing at Little Brown Books for Young Readers, and I'm pleased to welcome you to this episode of the Little Brown School and Library Podcast, or as we like to say correctly, episode, not episode. Everything is an app these days, but I like to think that we're still old school episode because we're talking about books. Today we're talking about a very particular book that I think is a powerful reading experience. We do not often do picture books on the podcast because picture books are such a visual experience, but each picture book begins life as a text, whether it's the text about a picture or a particular word. The book we're talking about today is a lot about the power of words, the centrality of words, how they make us feel, what they make us do from the very beginning of our lives. This book is called Something Good. It is written by Marcy Campbell and illustrated by Karina Lucan. And I'm very pleased to say that we have Marcy Campbell as our guest today. She is the author of a number of books. One of the books that I super have enjoyed came out recently from another publisher, which we say, Adrian Simcox does not have a horse. Another book that is about language and how we use it and the stories we tell each other and ourselves and how we make sense of the world. She does have a novel out recently called The Rule of Threes, and Marcy really does have a way with words. So we're excited to have her join us today to discuss her book, Something Good. Welcome, Marcy. Thank you, Victoria. It's great to be here. Something Good is a really difficult book in certain ways, but it is also a very easy book. And when I was looking at your bio online, it was really interesting to me that you've spent a lot of time working with words and sh- and shaping stories and shaping identities, whether that is, you know, sort of you were working at a radio station and you were doing interviews, but you also did a lot of public relations. And there's sorts of different purposes to these words, different social functions of these words. So your bio was very interesting to me as you came to this work. I am going to throw this curveball at you a little bit of how did you decide to move into using words in your social function as a, as a communications person of the radio and public relations, and how did you move from that into writing stories? My first book, which is a set of taped together pages and pictures, <laughs> I have that, and I always show that on school visits. I was five, and I think there's maybe three words, son, book, <laughs> very few words that I was just learning to spell. And I loved stories. I loved stories. And as I got into middle school, I started writing stories about my classmates because they were really the only people I knew. I was raised on a farm. Um, My siblings are quite a bit older than I am. So, uh, you know, we're out in the country. There weren't neighbors who could pop over on their bikes. So I spent a lot of time entertaining myself. Mm -hmm. And I had two great dogs, and the dogs and I would just, especially in the summer, we'd roam all over the farm, walk around the fields, end up under this tree, my favorite tree, and I would tell stories. And for some reason, I always told them out loud, and I would tell them to my dogs. And most of the stories were about animals. (laughs) And so I I started really early, but I did not have really any encouragement 
to write for a living, I didn't know that was a thing. Mm -hmm. We did not have books in our house, which might, I mean, very few, which is surprising to a lot of people um, and a lot of other authors, because most authors I meet grew up in a house full of books. Their mom was a teacher, you know, or a writer, or uh, they had that in their history. Mm -hmm. And I came from a a blue collar family. My parents were working multiple jobs. We had this farm. There wasn't time to read uh, for pleasure. My parents, you know, they they went to a little high school. They never went to college. They didn't have any experience with anyone who was doing art of any kind, certainly for a living. And that was all very scary to them, I think, because they wanted me to have uh, a future (laughs) where I could support myself. Mm But I really wanted to tell stories. And I had teachers, of course, it's always the teachers, right, who see that little glimpse of promise and bring that out in us. And so all along, through my school years, through middle school and high school, there were key uh, language arts teachers who would pull me aside and say, you know, you're really good at this. And I kind of filed that away until I went to college. And I was very fortunate that my parents did encourage myself and my siblings to go to college and found a way to help pay for that. And so it was there that, that I met the professor, again, a teacher who, um, who had an almost identical background to me, grew up on a farm, rural Minnesota for her. Um, no one in her family had any idea, you know, what she was talking about. Why do you want to write? And, you know, this isn't worthwhile. It's not, you know, it's not a way to make a living. And she sat me down in her office one day. Unfortunately, by then I was a senior uh, in college and I was getting ready to major, uh, to graduate with a degree in mass communications, uh, public relations specifically. And I took her creative writing class. I was an English minor. And she said, you know, you could do this for a living. And I couldn't believe someone was telling me that. And she was a published novelist. We had a long talk. And I thought, well, it's too late. It's too late. You know, (laughs) here I was at 23. Like, it's too late. (laughs) So dramatic. My life is over. I'm doing PR because that's what my plan was. And so I did PR and I enjoyed it. I enjoyed working with words every day. You know, you write newsletters and press releases and scripts and all those kinds of things. But at night I would go home and write stories. I never stopped that. And so there came a point where we moved to a different state. My, I got married. We moved to a different state. My husband was in grad school. We were surrounded by all these people in grad school. And I said, I want to go back to school and study creative writing. And that was a scary decision. I, you know, we had a house by then. I was making good money. And, mm-hmm. and I just quit. I packed up my little box and left my office and, um, and found my people. I think that was that was the best reason for me to go to grad school. I mean, I learned a lot, of course, but I also found people who valued storytelling and knew how important it was. And after that, I kind of didn't look back. So, so I did write for grown-ups for for years. I was writing. I published short stories and essays here and there, um, a couple of random poems. But it wasn't until I had kids then that I decided, well, I'm a writer and look at all these picture books. (laughs) Because you have to remember, I didn't have children's literature in my home. I knew Charlotte's Web 
because my teachers read it to me. I knew The Secret Garden because that was the one book that I could bring home from school that I just kept checking out over and over again. Mm -hmm. Just a very small handful of books that I had experience with until I became a parent. And our house was immediately filled with books and trips to the library three times a week. And I would read sometimes literally for four hours a day with one kid on each side of me and just picture books. And so, of course, I had to try. I had to try. <laughs> well, I, I love your answer because thinking about you telling stories to the dogs or to the tree and, and putting it out there without an expectation of response, but then looking at your professional experience of especially given your family background of, yes, you want your parents okay with you to work with words as long as you can get paid for that and it is very almost a utility sort of thing that you can really point to that as being like a lawyer or a doctor or a PR person, not an artist. Right, right. And I, I really enjoy hearing your trajectory because I am thinking about it as against writing picture books, but also this picture book in particular because you're somebody who by design or accident, you're really focused on the power of language, not in a very ethereal, aesthetic way, but really about that power dynamic of language, language that motivating people to do something or to feel a certain way. That I think is a bit different when we're in marketing or we're in public relations, et cetera, that we don't always have, or novelists don't always have that hat on in a very explicit way. Picture books share Go with me here, audience. Picture books share a particular something with PR. When you're writing a press release, you can't write 20 pages in a press release. Correct. It's a very <laughs> space-restricted zone. And picture books, you know, we think they are all about the visuals and that the words are just framing the art, but it's a very specific art form. And Picture books also, very restricted in physical space. We think of that as 32 pages, maybe 48 on a good day, a 32-page picture book, and there are a very restricted number of words on that page. So you have to think about the language that you're using on that page in a very targeted manner and really have to think about the meaningfulness and the impact of every single word on that page. And then I think about picture books with the public relations. It is about creating a community of communication. Community of communication. I need to be smacked that I said that. Sorry, audience. <laughs> I mean, this may seem obvious because, you know, you're a writer, but that really isn't always the case with authors. I do really see a theme of concern now that, you know, having read Adrian Simcox and dipped into your novel and hearing about your public relations, there does seem to be a concern about making connections and thinking about impact. Am I on the case there? What's it, the germ of a Marcy Campbell story? Is there something <laughs> that's emerging already in your career? I'm sorry, I have not read your work for adults because I'm not allowed to read books for adults. <laughs> I actually don't read many books for adults anymore. <laughs> and that's fine. I like all the books for kids. Um, what is the germ? You know, Gosh, so so where where do my ideas come from? Is that is that what well, you're getting I mean, at? Some ideas, you know, you may have them, but certain something I'm noticing a pattern. Like Adrian Simcox, I mean, it, it, does she believe Adrian Simcox? Yes. What the idea of right. truthfulness? And then when I read something good, kept reading it, and we'll get to a little bit about the triggering event here. It is a lot about 
the emotional weight of words. And so I was like, you do have ideas, but what are the things that are particularly attractive in these ideas? So you, mm-hmm. you pick some stories to develop rather than other stories. Are you noticing right. something that's more attractive to you to explore? Right. And I always start with, here's a kid who has a problem. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, and from there, and, and often, um, I think because I am really drawn to language, that problem, I mean, maybe the problem is the language in some cases, and the ways we can hurt each other with language or uh, build each other up. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I, I, when I have ideas that don't get developed, I will say it's because I maybe have a theme without a character. Like, actually, my I have another book approved with Little Brown, another picture book. Okay. I look forward to hearing more about it. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I probably can't say much about that yet, but... But I had an idea about waiting, having to wait for something. And until I saw a character and a situation, that's not going to go anywhere for me because it just becomes very didactic, very messagey, mm-hmm. unless I can ground it in a particular kid with a particular problem. So, so I think that for me, I always have themes, you know, both of my picture books, you could say, are about kindness and empathy, and mm-hmm. and I'll probably always touch on that in some way. But but I need a problem. I need a kid with a problem. <laughs> and when you mentioned language, when you were talking about picture books being almost being you know the visual that's supplemented with the language, like I approach them very differently mm-hmm. when I started writing them. That here's my words and let's add some pictures and see how we can, you know, Mm -hmm. supplement the words with the pictures. And that was very hard for me because I've been writing for a lot of years in a way where I've never had illustrations, you know, with anything I've ever written. And so that first draft of Victor and Simcox was like 2000 words and described everything. I showed it to someone who said, yeah, that's not how you do a picture book. Uh, and I didn't know. I mean, I'd read a ton of them, but but they said, you have to leave room for an illustrator. Your illustrator is your collaborator here. I think the the final, and I haven't done a word count on something good, but it's longer. Mm-hmm. It's longer. It, it might be 700 words. I'm not sure. But it feels short to me. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like there's, there's a whole lot of other things I could have gotten into there, but you don't have that room in a picture book. So, so now I've really come to just love the way that an illustrator collaborates and and Karina and I this is our second book together and mm-hmm. and we've become good friends it's easy but I don't have to explain stuff to Karina <laughs> Karina knows who I am and she knows what I'm trying to say and so there were zero art notes in Adrian Simcox there was one art note in something good and that was don't show it okay don't don't show the bad something which I think is a segue I bet it is a segue <laughs> You know, and I get to thinking about picture books a lot because, again, it is every single word counts. But as you mentioned, this book is about something good begins with something bad on the wall of an elementary school, a girl's school bathroom. I went to elementary school in the decades before the, the 20th century, and I've seen things on the wall. Kids see things on the wall. But what I love about something good is this, this thing, this word, and it's an assumption that it's a word. Whatever yes. is on the wall 
is not depicted or described. And the rest of the book is talking about the interruption to the community or the impact of that of that on the community. You focus on the effect of that something, whether it is a word or it is a drawing. Uh, it's something, whatever this something bad is, it's talked about a lot. It's whispered about a lot. So we see children, girls talking amongst themselves, girls talking about boys talking about it, boys talking about uh, about the girls talking about it, adults talking to each other, adults talking about the kids, adults talking to the kids. There's a lot of talking. There's a lot of regret about not talking. I, there's a beautiful spread where there used to be, there's the regret about we all used to laugh with each other and now we can't laugh with each other. In your text, there's a lot of responses flowing through the various segments of the community. What was the choice not to show or describe the thing and to focus on the impact? which I don't know what it is, people, and nor do you. It almost doesn't matter. When I started drafting this book, I actually, um, sometimes if, I, if I'm if i not sure of a word, I'll put it in parentheses mm -hmm. as I'm drafting. And so I said, well, I'm just going to call this the bad something. And I put that in parentheses. And by the time I was done writing, writing the first draft, I knew I wasn't going to name it. Because, of course, from a practical standpoint, you know, if this is hate speech, we're not going to put a symbol or a word uh, in a picture book. But I did think very, very briefly, like, could I water it down somehow? Could something be hinted at or in the illustrations? And that just didn't feel right to me because kids are exposed to a lot of really vile things uh, in everyday life. And I didn't feel right watering it down. The other thing is, Every child who reads this book, every adult who reads it, is going to have an idea of what that bad something is, even though they're not told. And that's going to be based on their age, and it's going to be based on their own identity and their own experiences. So just to back up, I will say that this was partially inspired by an incident that happened uh, in the third grade, actually, at, at my son's school, where I was volunteering. I volunteered for both my kids from the time they were in kindergarten through the elementary school. Every week, I'd come in one afternoon and help with whatever they needed mm -hmm. help with. And on this particular day, my job was to escort the girls to the bathroom because somebody had written something in there. Nobody told me what it was, but they were in trouble. And I was supposed to escort them to make sure that they didn't get into any more trouble. And I could not believe how these girls, and not just the girls, but the whole class, was affected by whatever it was that happened. And so when you read the book and there's different reactions and there's paranoia and anger and sadness, and I saw all that in kids who I'd been working with for several years at this point. Mm -hmm. So I knew these girls and I could see that this was really troubling. So it came from that and what was interesting was that they all started volunteering information to me about, well, I know, I, I bet I know what it was or I know who did it or, you know, like they all, and they weren't told. They were never told. It was covered up. That was the end of it. Um, my son had theories being in that class, but they were never told. So it just reminded me how kids are going to fill in the blanks, right? Mm -hmm. And and it's more universal if I let them fill in the blanks based on their own experience. I also felt like 
if I take that universal approach, it's important because if one person is harmed in this community, they're all harmed. And the thing is, if I was to say, well, this bad something targeted this one ethnic group or whatever I decided, then I'm immediately limiting the message. And I'm also letting people who aren't part of that group kind of wash their hands of it. You know, if it targets one kid, then the other kids can say, well, thank goodness it wasn't me. That's not my problem, you know. Mm-hmm. Or if it targets just the person who did it, then it becomes, well, we root out the perpetrator and everyone's fine. But they're all part of this community. So I just thought it was important to leave it universal so that they would all have a responsibility to make things better. I think one of the great places where this is shown is really at the beginning. And I'm just going to read this spread. The principal said no one was allowed to use that bathroom. But after lunch, Kyoko made a run for it. And me and Tanisha and Emmy were right behind her. We giggled our way in and shut the door and shushed each other as we looked around and over and on and under until we saw it. The bad something. My mouth popped open. Tanisha turned around and ran out. Kyoko kicked a stall really hard and the sound made us cover our ears. Emmy started to cry. What strikes me is that it's a first person, but there's a variety of responses depicted, and all of them, I mean, it's a sudden transition from treating it as a joke to not a joke, but each of these responses is nonverbal. Mm-hmm. Whatever this thing is, even without the looking at the visual of the, of the art, how you've depicted that it, they're stunned. These children are stunned and their ability to process language is momentarily fractured because whatever this something is, it's a physical thing that hurt them and they yes. respond to it physically, each in a very different way. So it disrupts their relationships among each other. Mm-hmm. I thought that just was so powerful from one spread of just going. The principal said no one was allowed to use that bathroom, but after lunch, so it's an adventure, and they're, and they're going to find out. They're investigating. They're going to see something. There's lots of words. And then it just slows way down until we saw it. The bad something. Then just describing nonverbal, physical responses. That's so powerful. How much revision and thinking about that sequence did you do with that? Because you're writing a book about not using language as that interruption. And and that's so, how you've done it is so amazing. Just the pacing and then popped, picked, you know, just the specific things you chose. How much time did you labor over that? How many revisions did you go through to get that? Well, this isn't always the case, but this book didn't take many revisions. (laughs) Once my editor, you know, once Andrea got hold of it, of course, we're tweaking uh, words here and there. But this was one that came out in, I'd say it was like I took one pass through after the first draft before this one sold. It came out pretty close to what you're reading. And that does not often happen. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think because... This one was based on a real event that happened to me. And I mentioned the third graders, but a week before 
the third graders, there was an incident that, that we know was hate speech where law enforcement was called mm-hmm. uh, in our high school. And in our district, if there's something like that that happens, the whole district goes on lockdown. And I was at the school, the elementary school that day when the kids were on lockdown. Mm-hmm. So I've experienced a lockdown too. And this was in 2018. We were seeing a whole lot more um, just blatant people really out there with their hate speech and and getting um, approval for it in some quarters. This was not long after Charlottesville. Mm-hmm. And I had this happen, and I was actually looking up, looking for information as a parent that I could help explain it to my kids and, and came across all this information about how schools could make a better climate so mm-hmm. that this kind of thing doesn't happen. I was up really late. I never write at night. I am a morning person. I was up late, just so upset that this had happened in my town. Mm-hmm. And I wrote it. So, so that particular spread, I'm pretty sure that one came out pretty much like it is. I knew that that the kids would think this was a sense of adventure. Like, we're going to sneak into the bathroom. Like, mm-hmm. kids want to know. They want to know. What is it? What is it? We have to know. But then once they saw it, things got real. And and they're old. You know, they've seen kids, even of that age, are old enough to have some experience if their parents talk about the news, even a tiny bit. Like, they've probably been exposed to something bad. <laughs> Such that they know when they see it, whatever it was, whatever it was, they know this is this is really bad and it shouldn't be here. I love how you took your observations of the kids in the third grade where you were volunteering and, and translated it into these four girls and then into the larger community, that single consciousness, into the three other friends with her and then into the entire school and just the rippling effect as it goes out and the variety of the responses to it and then thinking about that aspect of kids will fill in and kids will find out if they can't find out they will fill in if they can't fill in they will find out right and that ripple effect is so important because there's a line in the middle where it says we were meaner than we used to be and that's the line that i would actually repeat around the house during uh, bleak four years where I was watching too much news. And and I would watch the news and immediately find that I was in a bad mood and I might snap at my kids over mm-hmm. something that wasn't that serious because I was meaner. Mm-hmm. The hatred around us had made me a meaner person. And so I didn't like that. And Part of, I think, why I write children's books now is because I need a hopeful ending, and I write it for myself. This is not, the ending to something good is not what happened in my town. And I'm a fiction writer because, in part, because I get to create the endings that I need. Mm -hmm. And I hope, if I need them, then someone else needs them. Well, that leads me to the reactions that you're hoping to, to, you're hoping to see. Because, again, you're writing a book the way that you are, it is an act of hope. Telling stories to each other, it is creating meaning. It is trying to create hope for the next day. Whether that hopefulness takes a sense of something positive happened in an elementary school or a happy ending to an adventure tale. So we've looked at, there's a variety of responses to this situation within the book. I love the whole mural spread of people using different images and different mechanisms to cope and to make something positive. But what do you hope 
the audience responses will be, whether that's children reading the book for themselves or whether that's adults sharing the book with children. And let me just say, not for nothing, adults sharing it for themselves with themselves. There's no shame in taking a book like this off the shelf and just reading it for oneself, whether one is seven or seven, like I am. Absolutely. So the rea- the reaction question is a tough one because, you know, this is only my third book, mm-hmm. as you said, but I found out really early on with my first book, like at some level when a book comes out, I have to kind of separate myself from... That can be the <laughs> hardest part. I have to protect part. myself a little bit um, <laughs> from the reactions because if somebody gets it a day late on Amazon, they're going to give me one star, you know? <laughs> so there's that. But... At this point, something good hasn't been shared a whole lot, but there are a couple of teachers I know of who've gotten advanced copies and shared it uh, with their their kiddos. And I don't think because there was any issue with hate speech. I think they shared it because they had something happen and they needed to kind of refocus and commit themselves to really bringing out the best in their classmates. And that's perfect. And I think that also speaks to why leaving the bad something out and making it more universal is important because kids can use classrooms uh, or parents, teachers, parents, whoever can use this book to kind of recommit to each other about the kind of people they want to be and the values they want to have and um, how to lift each other up. So that's happened. But how are they going to react come September? um, I hope kids like I said, see a way to make that kindness effect ripple out through their classroom. And they see that both meanness and kindness has that ripple effect. One of my favorite characters in the book actually is Devin, who uh, at one point Devin trips when he's going to sharpen his pencil. And this is when the kids are, are really affected and feeling really mean and they all laugh. But at the end, it's Devin who is the the one to read his poem. They all make poems based on their mural. And he has never read out loud in class before. And the way all the kids, again, individual responses, but positive responses. Mm -hmm. And that ripple effect of kindness that we end with. So I hope kids see that and see that they're part of a bigger picture and how they act affects everyone around them. And I hope adults, whether parents, teachers, administrators, will dig a little deeper into the underlying causes of issues like hate speech and really do the work to examine their own biases and to try and create uh, a community where this kind of thing doesn't happen, or at least is rare. There's an author's note at the end that Mm -hmm. that gets at that. And I added that late because um, I started thinking, like, here's here's my second picture book. It's another book about kindness. Adrian's about kindness, empathy. And I guess after those four years between the two, I just wasn't always feeling like, like I needed to say there's a lot more work to do than just um, telling your kids to be kind. I mean, there's a lot of kindness types of programs in schools mm-hmm. that and they're great, great to teach kids to be kind. But we can't just say as parents, my kid painted a mural today racism's over or you know I mean I I worry about that I because kids are so amazing and we focus all the ways that kids are amazing like the kids aren't going to do the work 
for us. Like uh, adults need to help out and um, do some hard work ourselves. It's kids with a problem and they are guided in a number of ways by adults in resolving the problem. But really it's their choice. I mean, looking at Devin reading his poem, some kids smile and nod. Some kids lean way forward so they won't miss a thing. Some kids close their eyes and let his words wash over them. We take our time to look at one another. We take our time to look at one another. We all see something, something good. And it's that action of the kids within themselves, without adults, looking at each other, reintegrating, rebuilding, choosing something different, that moves forward to the next thing. Adult guidance and, adu and an adult net, but kids with a problem choosing how to solve that problem. Mm -hmm. Which I love. <laughs> kids doing it for themselves with a little help, but kids doing yeah. it for us. But then as a reminder to us that I could make fun of that, but I'm not going to. Mm -hmm. I'm going to look at one another and I'm gonna see something good. Right. Well, Marcy, thank you so much for sharing some time and insight into this book with us today. Thank you, it's fun. Gentle listeners throughout the virtual universe, something good, illustrated by Karina Lucan, written with supreme sensitivity by Marcy <laughs> Campbell. Something good should be on your shelves, in your classrooms, in your homes, on your to-be-read piles and to-be-read-again piles soon. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time.